entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump tries to tighten the situation at our southern border. And of course, the left is crying foul over it. We'll have that plus some updates on the Greenland diplomatic dispute, which has become a real thing. And the feud between Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib and President Trump continues to spill out into the open. We've got that and much more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. You think I can speak for three hours without a phone call? Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. After nearly two years of work by the Department of Homeland Security and Health and Human Services professionals, consideration of over 100,000 comments from stakeholders and members of the public, and a comprehensive review, the Trump administration has established a new rule to respond to the realities of current immigration flows, a rule based in the principle that families should remain together during immigration proceedings. While the Flores Settlement Agreement is operationally outdated and does not respond to the current immigration crisis, it has many important aspects and principles, like the need for special protections for children and high standards for government facilities that were adopted as defining features in this new rule. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Finally, it looks like the Trump administration is going to try and unshackle itself from what is known as the Flores Decree, a judge, a federal judge's decision from back in the 90s that said that you can't hold uh, people who are minors beyond 20 days in any immigration enforcement-related proceeding, um, saying that immigrant children held beyond that, you know, face emotional and psychological harm. Well... Because of that uh, consent decree, we have been in the midst of, for about a year now, a massive migration of illegal aliens exploiting that loophole, and it is a loophole. You have adults showing up with children, knowing that under Flores, they can't be held for more than 20 days, and once they are released under that 20-day period, They'll be in the interior of the United States, and then they are good to go. No longer have to worry about going through our immigration process. No longer have to concern themselves with whether or not we really want them to stay in this country as illegal aliens. Uh, They're here, and they're here to stay. This is why uh, Guatemalan-based smugglers apparently offer a discount That's right. You show up with a child, they'll smuggle you to the U.S.-Mexico border at a discount. Because it's so much easier. So the Trump administration now, I mean, immigration is the single, it's the single biggest point of failure under the Trump administration so, so far on domestic policy. It's really international policy in a sense. I think there's no question about it. This is the biggest problem Trump has been unable to conquer yet. And as a president who ran on fixing immigration, it is particularly troublesome that the situation at our southern border, particularly in Trump's second year in office, is worse than it had been or was worse than at any time uh, in the last 20 years. 
But the Flores decree, just just a federal judge, it's not a law, folks, a federal judge, because the way the system works, the federal judge's decree uh, is binding on the federal government because the federal government accepted it. Now they're going forward with, okay, we've got a new plan. This is how the Trump White House wants to handle things going forward. We will, they will no longer separate people who show up at the southern border with children. So no more family separation. Remember, that was the policy, which was just the policy was, has been misrepresented as family separation was the point. The policy was merely prosecuting people that break the law by coming to the country illegally. And as with any criminal prosecution, in this country, you are separated from your children when you are processed for a criminal charge. That's what was happening. But yes, that did mean that there were people separated from their families, just like there were people separated from their children under the Obama years, just not in the same numbers. So now you have the administration coming forward. You have DHS uh, Chief Kevin McAleenan in saying that, look, we're going to keep We're going to keep people in detention as families, but we're going to hold them longer than 20 days because we can't process them in those 20 days. And they're going to stay in detention until they've had their asylum hearings. And then depending on how those asylum hearings go, they're either going to be released into the United States as legal asylees or sent back to their home country. Now, If someone believed in the rule of law, if someone believed in sovereignty, in borders, they would think, wow, this this sounds very reasonable. They have to improve conditions in the facilities. This is a part of it. A federal judge is going to have to sign off on it. And we know that the lib open borders apparatus is going to challenge us in the courts right away. There's no question about that. But they present this to a judge. They say we're going to move beyond the consent decree. We want this to be our new policy going forward. And... If it happened, you would think anyone would say, "Okay, now asylees are held in reasonable conditions as a family. I'm sorry, those requesting asylum held in reasonable conditions as a family, no separation. But they got to wait. They've got to wait their turn for the court proceeding. And then that proceeding will determine whether they stay or leave. And if it's leave, they're going together. They are sent back to Guatemala. They are sent back to El Salvador or Honduras or wherever they're from. And that's going to be the policy. Do you think that libs are saying that Democrats, elected Democrats are saying, well, this seems like a good faith fix. No more family separation, but also no more exploiting our laws. Of course not. Oh, this is terrible. This is racist. This is. You know, the whole thing is dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. How could Trump be so evil? You mean we're going to fix the loophole now? They're going to try to fix the loophole. They're going to eliminate the exploitation of the goodwill and good faith of the American people as evidenced through our asylum process to begin with. The very fact that we have this asylum process is just an outgrowth of the giant collective heart that the American people have. Because this is separate from the rest of the you know immigration system where we're taking in a million immigrants a year. Anyone who says America under Trump or in general isn't pro-immigrant doesn't know what the heck they're talking about. We take in over a million immigrants every year through our legal process. And we have an asylum program. 
These are people who are trying to skip the asylum line, skip the legal immigration line, and just come into the country. Trump, this White House, this Department of Homeland Security are trying to find a way so that that incentive of cutting the line, of breaking the law, is gone. And now we see who the Democrats really are because guess what? This will be unacceptable too. The, just like it was unacceptable when we said, okay, how about if you want asylum in this country, you wait on the Mexican side of the border because then at least we know that you're not coming here just so you can get into the United States and never show up for your court hearing as a so-called asylum seeker. Democrats hated that idea too. Oh, Mexico is not safe enough, they were saying for a while. You know, AOC and others were saying, you know, Mexico is not safe enough. I, to this I said, well, if that's the case, then do we have to take all of Mexico in as a refugee too? As refugees, that just seems insane. But that's you know, at each phase of this, when we call the Democrats bluff, when we say, "Okay, fine, you you don't want family separation, no more family separation." How about this? They say, "Up, oh, unacceptable." Uh, uh-uh. uh, nope. The only thing that is acceptable to Democrats here is people get to show up, go right into the country if they have a child with them, and then they're on the honor system to show up. And if they don't show up for court, guess what? If we try to find them and deport them, we're bad people, we're evil. Doesn't matter if that's what the law says. This is the game they're playing. They lie and lie and lie. And when we catch them in a lie, they just move on to the next lie because ultimately they want open borders because open borders means a single-party state in this country. The Democrats, the left, will be the only political power And those of you listening to this who, like me, are conservative will be some anachronism, will be an in-the-wilderness political party. You know, it's, it's, it's cute that we think we have a say in what happens in this country, but it won't be reality anymore. I don't know why it took the Trump administration so long to get here, but at least they're trying to deal with this now. And you're going to see Democrats once again being the open border zealots that they are, any enforcement mechanism, anything that does not allow for people to show up from anywhere over, around the world, but particularly from Central America, and just get right into the country because they're, quote, claiming asylum, unacceptable. You have to be led into the United States, and then we get to play the let's track them down game. And if you try to track them down, then you're a bad guy. And if you try to deport them after you track them down, you're a bad guy. They oppose, the Democrats, the left, oppose enforcement of our immigration laws at every step. They are never on board for rule of law when it comes to immigration, They are consistent in their lawlessness. And there's one other thing that the administration brought up, and this is going to get very contentious, and you're going to see a lot of people who don't know what the heck they're talking about making very strident claims in this area. The issue of of what is called birthright citizenship. Now, this has led to, for a long time, what what is referred to as the anchor baby issue, which I know people get very upset about that term, Now they want us to use family reunification, right? They're always fighting over the language. But the idea of an anchor baby is that somebody can come into the country illegally, have a child here, and then that child is a citizen. And then it is is effectively impossible or very, very hard to deport that parent or any member of that immediate family because you do have a U.S. citizen now under current interpretation of law. Well, there's obviously abuse that goes on, and this happens with these special hospitals for visitors set up in California where 
uh, Chinese visa holders will show up here as tourists specifically to have a baby here. And they have these birth hospitals they set up just for this so they can go back to China. But then when they want their if their child wants to come to the United States for university or whatever, they're a citizen. So they, they, they stop here for a couple, you know, for a couple of weeks, get the get the child becomes a citizen and then they can come back here. And, oh, that's right. Sponsor the whole family to come here, too, as a U.S. citizen later. This is where the anchor. The anchor component of the anchor baby phrase comes in. That's that's clearly not what the founding fathers had in mind. And people talk about the different amendments to the Constitution, and they will refer to birthright citizenship as being constitutional, but subject to the jurisdiction thereof has never, that's the, that is the key phrase here, it has never been fully tested in the courts. Because when you think about this, someone who is a foreign national who comes into the United States in violation of U.S. law and has a child here is in fact still subject to the jurisdiction of their home country. So why would the why should the assumption be that if you you know if you're having if you have a stopover in the United States and have a baby here on your way to some other country and you are a citizen of a of a third country why would your baby automatically get citizenship in America if you are not an American citizen your you know spouse is not an American citizen why should that be the case We've been led to believe that this is a bedrock principle in the constitution it is in fact not and really, if you look at the amendment in question, it was specifically in reaction to uh, post-Civil War America making sure that the freed slaves were all given their full rights because they were all subject to the jurisdiction thereof in this country. It was not intended to create a loophole for people to come here for a very short period of time have a baby real quick at taxpayer expense, by the way, and then go back to their home country. And not only does that child then have citizenship here, but can sponsor the rest of the family to come here at a later date. That's not that was not the intent of the founders. I think that much is clear. Now, this will be if the Trump mentioned this a year ago, if they push on the birthright citizenship question, it is going to get nasty in this country it's going to get very very ugly that much is for sure but it's really based only on a footnote in a supreme court uh, decision there's they have not fully tested the interpretation of federal law that this is birthright citizenship means that if you just happen to have a baby here that person is a citizen even if you are just passing through and both parents are not u.s citizens that has never been tested in court so even the Wall Street Journal here, I'm reading, they're saying, oh, it's oh, you know, this has been the way it is. It's been this way for a long time. And the Supreme Court has always upheld this and well, hasn't really been tested, actually. But this will be very contentious. But watch and see how the left reacts to this, because it'll tell you everything about what they really are, which is an open borders political ideology. We've got more coming up. Stay with me. Uh, yesterday, you said that, that Jews, American Jews who vote for Democrats are disloyal. To whom are they being disloyal, sir? And, and that's a so, yeah. so I have been responsible for a lot of great things for Israel. In my opinion, the Democrats have gone very far away from Israel. I, I cannot understand how they can do that. They don't want to fund Israel. They want to take away foreign aid to Israel. They want to do a lot of bad things to Israel. In my opinion, 
you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Jewish people and you're being very disloyal to Israel. And only weak people would say anything other than that. I think that if you vote for a Democrat, you're very, very disloyal to Israel and to the Jewish people. So that was Trump clarifying a statement that he made the day before where he talked about uh, this this was when he was in the Oval Office with the uh, prime minister uh, or president, I can't remember, of Romania. I think it's president probably. Uh, He said that it's very disloyal what's going on right now with Democrats who will vote uh, or rather with Jews who will vote Democrat, even though the Democratic Party is clearly a home for at least some anti-Semites. Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, among others, but. Now, that's not necessarily the mainstream position of the Democratic Party. I don't think it's fair to say that it is. But there is a problem in the Democratic Party. There's no question about that. But what I thought was so interesting was people were saying that Trump, that the media immediately jumped to, oh, Trump is using an anti-Semitic trope of dual loyalty to the U.S. and to Israel because they were interpreting what he said as they're being disloyal to America, I guess. By doing that, even and I thought, well, no, I thought it was quite clear. He's saying that they're being disloyal to Israeli interests by voting for the Democratic Party, which is increasingly anti-Israel, at least in part. I also feel like I've had enough of this Rashida Tlaib Ilhan Ilhan Omar story. I feel like I've had enough. We get it. If you're a female minority Muslim in Congress, you can be an anti-Semite. And the Democratic Party is really not going to do anything about it. Because if you're anti-Trump and you're a minority, they don't want to look like they're going against someone who's anti-Trump. And they don't want to look like they're going against uh, Muslim minorities. So the Democrats are and the media is not going to touch it. Democrats aren't going to touch it. And now they're turning around and saying, yeah, well, maybe Trump's the real anti-Semite because he said this thing about loyalty. Yeah, sure. Trump, whose son-in-law is an Orthodox Jew and whose daughter is a converted Orthodox Jew. Trump's a huge anti-Semite. Trump from from New York City, he's a huge anti-Semite. I mean, do they ever get tired of their stupidity? Do they ever get tired of the lies? Of course not. Uh, But I'm hoping that we can put this story aside for now. Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are anti-Semites. Democrats won't call them out. Democrats are hypocrites on it. And Trump was right to call them out. Okay. I think I think we could say we're going to move on to other stories now. We'll be right back. Just like in my generation, when I got out of school, that uh, when Bobby Kennedy and Dr. King had been assassinated in the 70s, uh, late 70s, when I got engaged, um, you know, up to that time, remember, none of you women will know this, but a couple men may remember. That was a time in the early, late 60s, or the early 60s and 60s, where... It was drop out, go to hate Asbury, don't get engaged, don't trust anybody over 30. At what point is it just too much for Democrats to continue to carry water for Joe Biden here? You know, Now, now he says that, uh, what, Kennedy and MLK were assassinated in the 70s. There are some dates that one might get wrong. You know, what, I, what I'm talking to you about, oh, I don't know, the, the founding of of Greenland, or if I'm if I'm throwing out the uh, the date of the Louisiana Purchase later in the show, some things we're going to talk about. I'm, you know, you get that wrong because we're not robots, and you can forget things, right? Things things can happen. You can be in a position where, or you can't be expected, I should say, to, to get everything right all the time. I mean, I try to get everything right all the time. It don't always work. But Biden seems foggy, folks. He seems foggy in a way that if he weren't 
running to be the leader of the free world at a very advanced age, I would say, wow, I hope his family is close by and, and able to make sure that they keep an eye on him and tend to him. And you know, Because respect for our elders is a very important part of our society. It's a very important part of any society. You cannot have a decent society unless elders are treated with, with love and, and respect, right? That's very, very important. But just because we want to treat elders with respect, it doesn't mean that somebody who's of Biden's uh, age and it's not just the number, it's also the apparent, the, the visible, the audible stumbles that are coming with this age. You know, he's someone who's been in this game a very long time and it looks like he's slowed down. It looks like there's some problems. I think we're allowed to say that Biden is not up for this job based solely on the uh, his age as manifested in the statements that he makes and just the, the, the lack of sharpness that he's got. And we, we hear people, we've heard all these stories about the 25th Amendment with Trump and how people around him worry that maybe he's, he's uh, you know, gone crazy. And then I always say, what is the statement? Did he just all of a sudden launch into gibberish in the Oval Office? What is it? Oh, you know, he's crazy because he says that we need to build a wall. Well, he's right. So if, if crazy means being right, then I guess we got big problems in this country. He's correct on the building of a wall, and it is possible to do, and we should build a wall. So what is the crazy thing that he said? We're, we're told all the time, the 25th Amendment, oh, they're going to remove him because the cabinet's going to come together. And it, This is just nuts. They talk about the physical, or the mental, rather, infirmity of this president and present no evidence for it. Meanwhile, Joe Biden's out there. We're being told that they need to uh, scale back his schedule. They need to find ways to keep him from, uh, you know, being too exposed to the press too late in the day because he can't keep up with it because he's not in a position to be able to handle the rigors of the campaign season. And that's just what is going on here. You know how the Democrats can actually win this thing? You know what it really comes down to for, for what I can see? It's just, and this is why there's all these stories about it right now, and part of it is driven by the, the interest that the economy always gets, but also the, there's a tremendous amount of power and, and politics that are riding on this too. Is there a recession? Is there a recession? I don't offer this as some kind of a astute analysis. Oh, you know what's really... Because I, I think it's obvious. I think Democrats realize it, too. There's a there's a lack of seriousness. And I know I, I saw the poll today where Biden is ahead of Trump by... What was it? Five or six points in a national poll? Oh, if, by, if the election happened tomorrow, you know, Biden would be Trump. That's what they say. I'm not buying it. I was going to say Bidening it. That's not what I meant. Buying it. Uh, I don't believe that that's true. Uh, that's why you're seeing more of this reporting about the the yield curve is inverted again. No one even knows what the yield curve is. No one understands it. You know, we're just we we want to believe that there's some single, there's some solitary indicator of what our economic future will be because people worry. This is why catastrophists are so successful. This is why. Those who come on air, I mean, look, I, I probably, you know, what would be, I'd probably have bigger ratings on radio 
If I would just come on and just do the same thing every day, oh my gosh, the country's being ruined, everything's going to hell, everything's terrible. I mean, I don't do that because I think it's boring, I think it's intellectually lazy, but there are people who do some version of that on a regular basis. Uh, I tell you what is bad, I tell you what is good. I think that that's a, a more, certainly a more honest way to approach what's happening in the country, and that may change uh, going forward, or rather what's good may change <laughs> Not my honesty. What's good may change going forward because there is a real possibility of recession. I'm not saying it's not the case, but I do think that right now there's a there is a not just a hoping for a recession, but Democrats are trying to they understand that there is a perception here. Right. People always say be fearful when the market is greedy and be greedy when the market is fearful. Um, You want to be on the other side of the perception curve if you're trying to make money. Because perception moves, does move markets. And Democrats are clearly invested in a negative view of the economy, hoping that that will perhaps accelerate because a, a recession, here's what we all need to understand. The timing is everything here. A recession that happens in, let's say, the first or second quarter of 2020 is golden for the Democrats. A recession that happens in the first or second quarter of 2021 is just too freaking bad for the Democrats. Trump will be in office. We'll we'll deal with it. And they got four more years of Trump. They know that. So if we are if we are to believe that recessions are cyclical and we're heading for one and there's there's an inevitability to it. Democrats are trying to hasten its arrival by convincing people that it's here sooner than it would otherwise be so that they make changes in how they spend their money and what they're doing because the media is still very powerful and very able to shape perception. And that's why you're going to continue to see a lot of this going forward. That's why you got a poll that says 69% of people, I saw this today on the morning consult uh, polling firm, 69% of people would hold Trump responsible for a recession. This is, this is the whole thing, folks. It's going to be the economy. We know it. They know it. So all of the reporting you see, all of the, remember how much the left invests in narrative creation. Everything that you see going on with the economy from here forward is going to be infused with political intent by these different major news organizations. Because Biden's not going to become sharp as a tackle all of a sudden. That's for sure. That's not going to happen. I'm going to meet with the attorney general next week. I want to declassify as much as possible. I want the American public to hear the story. I want all this information to come out. I don't want people to believe what I say about it. I want them to read for themselves how bad it was. Uh, The warrant application to the FISA court, I think, was quite frankly a fraud on the court. I hope that we get to read all of this. I certainly like what uh, Lindsey Graham is is saying here about how he's going to push for more transparency. You'll notice how incredibly fast Russia just fell out of the headlines, the whole Mueller probe. And I thought Russia was our most dangerous foe. I thought we had all these terrible worries about what the Russian government was going to do and how they're going to influence our next election again and all this stuff. Meanwhile, hmm, the rest of us look around, we say, hold on a second. All, all of a sudden, that in, in the month of August, that essentially was erased. We don't hear 
anything really about Russia anymore. How do you go from a near obsession in the mainstream press with this one country and all the terrible things it has done to us and how Trump is an agent of the Russian government, Trump is doing Putin's bidding, Trump is all these things. Now it's all of a sudden nothing. Barely a peep about this. How did it change so rapidly? Oh, that's right. It was a narrative of anti-Trump resistance. It was not really a reflection of news uh, of news and necessary information for people to consume on a day-to-day basis to understand the world around them better. The Russia story was, had nothing to do with an informed American public via journalism. It was creating a politically potent narrative to destroy the Trump administration. And when that was no longer possible, it had gone beyond its usefulness. I do think that some Democrats are smart enough to realize as well that this Inspector General report that's going to come out, we're told, in September is going to look very, very bad. Or look very badly, perhaps I should say, for those who were peddling this Russia narrative all along. Uh, Lindsey Graham there made it clear he thinks there might have been a fraud perpetrated by lying or lies of omission, at least, to the FISA court to get surveillance on Carter Page going, who was an associate of the Trump campaign. They say, oh, but he was no longer with the Trump campaign when they were surveilling him. Really? That's so interesting, because then in what universe is he worth that degree of federal government attention? He didn't have classified access. He didn't, you know, there was nothing sensitive about his work. Oh, but because he was tied to Trump, his communications with any other Trump officials would have been fair game. His communication with the Trump campaign would have been picked up by the surveillance even long before the order was given. Anything he has in his inboxes, anything he has in his emails, they could go through all of that. That matters a whole lot, doesn't it? Carter Page to this day, not only has he not been indicted for any crime, no one has been able to come up with what the theoretical crime is that he may have been committing in this process. He had previously worked with the FBI and helped them to identify Russian malfeasance against this country. Now we're supposed to believe that all of a sudden he turned and was doing the bidding of his Russian handlers? This is nonsense. No one really thinks this. No one really believes this. This was all a pretense. I remember in the Oval Office last October, almost now a full year ago, President Trump told me that he was going to declassify more information about the origins of the Russia collusion investigation. He decided not to do it. Now, I was led to believe by other sources at the time that was largely because of the objections of those in the intelligence community, the objections of the DOJ, law enforcement. Uh, I'm starting to think that, no, he realized better to hold that back in reserve. Better to wait until the time is absolutely right and then pull back those curtains and let the American people see what really happened here. Let the American people see just how dirty the Democrats and their deep state allies were willing to play 
in order to derail Trump, to defeat Trump in this whole process. But then we get to, as I've told you, the ultimate question, the radioactive, the you cannot touch this, you cannot go near this question, because for Democrats, it's really a, a nearly existential issue for their party. Who, who are the heroes of the Democratic Party today? There are really none that exist. Who has the greatest brand value, who's the most valuable name, even if he cannot run right now? The most valuable name in politics to Democrats is Obama. No question. Far more, more valuable than, than double loser Clinton. Because people forget about Bill now and all they think about is Hillary. And given what we've been hearing about Bill recently, I think Democrats might do themselves a favor and forget about Bill entirely as well. But what did Obama know? Lindsey Graham indicated. Lindsey's good on some issues. He's not so good on others. He's been good on this whole Russia spying thing. And yes, I will always be thankful to Lindsey Graham as just as an American, just as a human being, for him standing up for Kavanaugh when that grotesque ritualized humiliation and torture session on TV uh, was going on when Kavanaugh was up for uh, Senate confirmation. But Graham brought up that the Obama knowledge of the spying is something that we do need to get some answers about. Play clip five. Here's the question. It's not what did Obama know and when he knew it. Who told him and what did he do when he was told? I want to know who briefed the president about their counterintelligence investigation against the Trump campaign. Here's what I think we're going to find out. I think we pretty much know the answer. I think it was John Brennan, the CIA director. I think that he told the president just enough that he could claim that the president was informed about what was going on. And Obama knew that this was happening and decided not to shut it down and not to add any additional scrutiny to it and just let his minions in the deep state and his appointees at the Department of Justice and in the uh, CIA to work their anti-Trump magic. I think that's what happened here. And I do believe we may find that out. Now, the Democrats will fight like mad to prevent any reputational damage to Obama. They will go to the mat. They will do whatever they have to do to make sure that Obama's legacy is not tainted in any way. Up to and including, I believe, a lot of them would be willing to destroy evidence and break the law. I have no, no qualms in saying that. I think that there are people that believe that Obama, especially in the era of Trump, Obama's legacy is a matter of national security importance. They need to believe, the Democrats need to think that Obama was beyond reproach, or at least that the public thinks that, enough of them, uh, because... Otherwise, all this stuff about how Trump is destroying America and Trump is so evil, it makes it really hard for that to be the narrative when the outgoing president of the Democratic Party, president of the United States and leader of the Democratic Party, was willing to weaponize the intelligence community against the political opposition, which is what happened here. That is, as much as they want to avoid it, that is the ultimate conclusion we are heading to. I just hope we get the evidence 
out sooner rather than later. It is with uh, regret and uh, surprise that I received the news that uh, President Trump has cancelled his state visit to Denmark. A discussion uh, has, however, been raised, raised about uh, a potential sale of Greenland. Um, this has clearly been rejected uh, by Kim Kielsen, a position that I share, of course. Uh, this uh, does not change uh, the character of our good relations and we will, of course, from Denmark, continue our ongoing dialogue with the US on how we can develop our cooperation and deal with uh, the many common uh, challenges we are facing. Buying Greenland, how crazy is it, folks? You know, originally... The whole thing sounded like it was a joke, right? There were these media reports that President Trump had been speaking to some of his senior advisors about maybe buying Greenland, which, as we all know, is a, a rather frigid Danish protectorate. It's also the largest island in the world. Hmm. Fun fact. There were lots of memes and jokes about this as soon as this came out. You got the leader of the free world. There's also a real estate magnate right he starts thinking about a land deal that is going to uh, involve a country that's known for its glaciers and its sparse population well guess what turns out trump wasn't kidding and not only was he not kidding he did not take kindly to that was you just heard danish prime minister meta frederiksen yeah meta frederiksen uh, when she said Greenland is not for sale to a newspaper, uh, he didn't like that. Trump was supposed to, in just a few weeks, visit with Denmark's Queen Margrethe, and Margrethe, I don't know how you say it, the second, but uh, decided it wasn't a good time to do that. And we, you might say, well, hold on, maybe there's some other reason why Trump didn't want to go to Denmark. Uh-uh. Play clip seven. The prime minister used a terrible word when describing something that we've been talking about for years with our country. President Truman said, what about Greenland? And he talked about it very openly, and it was a big deal at the time. And I brought it up again, and it was discussed many other times. And I thought it was not a nice statement, the way she blew me off, because she's blowing off the United States. And we've done a lot for Denmark. And we treat countries with respect. She shouldn't treat the United States that way by saying, absurd. That's not the right word to use. All they had to do is say, no, we'd rather not do that, or we'd rather not talk about it. Don't say what an absurd idea that is. Because she's not talking to me. She's talking to the United States of America. You don't talk to the United States that way. But let's actually unpack this for a moment here. Look, obviously Trump took this kind of personally. I mean, this is the most attention since uh, some Vikings were blown off course in like the 900s or around the 11th century. It's not even really clear when the first Vikings landed there in Greenland. Iceland was a pretty well, uh, pretty well established settlement way in advance of Greenland. Um, and it's one of those, one of the earlier cases I know of, of somebody naming something so that it is more attractive as real estate. They, they do this in New York City all the time. Oh, this isn't Hell's Kitchen, it's Midtown West. You know, they, they have ways of trying to say things that change it all up. Oh, this isn't some frozen wasteland, it's Greenland. 
But how crazy an idea is this exactly? Well, look, from an international perspective, let's break this down for a moment. Greenland could be sold. I mean, Denmark could say, yeah, we're going to sell it. And as long as the Greenlanders held some referendum under, under international law, if there really is such a thing, it's a whole other conversation. There's nothing that says this can't happen. I mean, Greenland's entire population is only about 55,000 people. That's, uh, that's less than Schenectady, New York. Its national output's under $3 billion a year. Its single biggest industry is fishing. It's got a little tiny capital, Nuuk, N-U-U-K. Other than that, very little infrastructure. We do have uh, Thule Air Force Base. Thank you for explaining to me how to say that. That's on the northwest portion of the island. But then you could ask, well, okay, Buck, so it's not like it's some huge, well, it is huge as a landmass. It's roughly the size of the Louisiana Purchase. Oh, that's right. Another very successful American land deal from back in the day. Or say Seward's, quote, folly from what was it, 1867, I think. We've done this before. This has worked out. We have bought large pieces of land. That's right. Louisiana Purchase was 1803. We bought Alaska from the Russians. We got a very good deal. You basically completely schooled us in negotiations. We took it, uh, Alaska from the Russians in 1867. So we've done this before. It has been successful. It's not that much of a population. It's a uh, very harsh climate, though, and not a lot. It seems like not a lot there. So do we want it? Well, then we got to get into maybe it's a great idea for the future. So Greenland's kind of a strategic territory. It has... A lot of natural resources, zinc, copper, gold, um, uranium. You know, there's actually an Australian mining company called Greenland Minerals. Guess what? Chinese own about 10 or 15% of it. I can't remember. Uh, But they're mining for rare earths there already. So the Chinese are already getting in on that through an Australian company. Uh, But you have an increasing competition for the projection of force and, and interests and an eventual possible Northwest passage through the Arctic Circle. And that's going on between, that competition's going on between America and Russia. Also, you know, there was a piece in the New York Times a couple weeks ago that a quarter of the world's population faces a, a running out of potable water. Guess what? Greenland's, the Greenlandic ice shelf is the second largest source of fresh water in the world. I believe second only to Uh, glaciers and things like that in Canada. I think Canada is number one. Also, they tell us that climate change is going to happen really fast and things are going to get warmer. Guess what? That means more of Greenland is actually going to be Greenland and less under ice. Could we get it at a good price? Uh, Greenland costs Denmark about $700 million a year. That's right. The world's largest island is also a welfare state. Would the Danes want to offload this? Is it worth it for the United States? Could be. Uh, Could be. But even if not, if you have not seen it, I did share it from my Twitter account. The photo, it's it's Photoshop, obviously, but the photo of a Trump Tower in a little Greenlandic town is one, and Trump tweeted it out himself. It's one of the best things Trump has ever tweeted. So... Greenland has caused a little bit of a, of a uh, diplomatic spat with our Danish friends. 
I'm sure we'll get past it soon, but we might end up getting Greenland. Don't count it out. We're moving expeditiously, and I think soon I'll be in a position to report to Congress and the public the results. I will say that, as I said before, we have found uh, serious irregularities uh, at, the, at the center, but at the same time, I have seen nothing uh, that undercuts the finding of the medical examiner that this was a suicide. The Attorney General knows just how appalling the situation with Epstein is. I, I, I do believe, and I've been reading the reports about how he feels, I've been talking to friends over at DOJ about this, that, that he, even as somebody that, that has been in the, worked in the federal government many years before, understands the DOJ, understands the limitations the federal government has, the lack of efficiency, the lack of excellence, that it's just endemic. I mean, it's systemic. It's all over the place, the federal government. The bureaucratic sloth is inescapable. Even with all of that, what happened with Epstein is just hard to believe. As Barr said, and to paraphrase him, but it was from earlier in the week, uh, the top ring of the uh, the top rung of the Department of Justice, all the way down to the jailers in the Bureau of Prison System itself, they all knew. Everybody knew. People just walking down the street that had read a newspaper knew that Epstein was a suicide risk, and that he would be removed from suicide watch. And, and, and nobody would check on him and people would fall asleep and all this incompetence happened. I, I am, and, and, you know, he, he is horrified by it, as he should be, and they've moved the head of the Bureau of Prisons off the, off the case now. I mean, not off the case, out of his position. I mean, there does need to be some accountability here. So, you know, we always say that. I mean, it's true, but it's so pro forma. I mean, who really cares? It's not going to... Okay, that guy's going to get replaced with some other guy who's ahead of the Bureau of Prisons. Is he going to be better? Who knows? But here's what I do know. Uh, Barr says that there's nothing to indicate that anything happened other than Epstein uh, killed himself. I'm willing to accept that because I don't know enough. I'm not an expert in the you know, medical diagnosis of suicide versus strangulation uh, there's there are limitations on how much i can get into that debate one way or the other just because i don't have i'm i have a knowledge uh a knowledge imbalance with the people that are looking at for one they're actually able to check the body i'm not i mean i have to only go on the reports that i read no one's gonna let me inspect epstein and even if, even if i did i wouldn't even really know what i'm looking for right so just to be very fair about that I do think that it's it's credible that he killed himself based on what we've seen everywhere. Okay, so I think that Epstein suicided himself. And I all the memes about make sure you check for Hillary in your closet before you go to sleep. I'm not saying get rid of those, but hello. But Hillary, you know, put that aside from it. Looks like Epstein probably killed himself. Is it still in the realm of possibility in my mind that very important people in the in the in the decision making chain here? wanted to give Epstein, wanted to create the circumstances in which it would be possible for Epstein to kill himself when clearly, and without any real dispute or debate on this point, clearly it should have been impossible for Epstein to kill himself. Do I think that someone somewhere along the line here might have pushed it, nudged it in the direction of 
opening up that door for him? Yes. I still think that's a possibility. Um, and then I get into some other things that I think are possible here. Uh, one is that if, if we do not hear more names of people who are involved in this Epstein cabal of pedophiles, if we don't get presented by the authorities with evidence that he had uh, blackmail on these different individuals and there aren't possible charges that that flow to these other individuals that come up for these other individuals, the fix is in. I really do believe that. It's just not credible that Epstein had this set up the way. I still don't like people calling me a financier. From what we know, the guy just got money from super rich people and looked like he was running a blackmail operation. I mean, anybody, when you have enough money, can invest it in different things. That's not that's different than making a billion dollars, right? You could give me a billion dollars and I put it in a bank account and buy some stocks. That doesn't make me a financier or an investor, right? I'm a financier and an investor if I've created wealth, not if I've just transferred it to myself and then put it into other other vehicles without any uh, any track record of success or, or growing that wealth. But we still don't know anything about Epstein, really, about his money and where it is and how much he had. And I think that his assets far exceeded what were listed when he went to the Bureau of Prisons. And this is a guy who was an expert in those kinds of manipulations. Turns out that he signed that will two days before he died, and it was done in the, or the, the, the lawyers who did it or whatever. Somehow it was based out of the jurisdiction of, of uh you know, offshore. It was uh, for his his island, whatever that, uh, whatever that jurisdiction falls under. So it was not subject to the usual U.S. laws. So, I mean, this guy understands the way to play this play the system. He understands how to hide money, how to how to create legal hurdles to getting at him. So I think that we still have a very murky picture of his finances, and I worry that they're just going to try to make the whole situation of his finances um we're just never going to get answers there's a motion right now with his lawyers to try and dismiss the case against him and i'm telling you i could see this thing just it just will disappear down the memory hole again despite all of the incredibly troubling things that we've already been told despite the fact that we have young women who are on the record saying they have named people. We believe that there was there was an ongoing surveillance operation that Epstein himself was running. You're going to tell me you don't think that that guy, think about what he had in his safe in New York. I know he had the painting of Bill Clinton in the blue Monica dress, which is completely bizarre. But think about what he has in his safe in New York. Think about what he has probably in other, other locations, hidden. I just think that there are a lot of people who don't want the truth to come out. And not just those individuals who might be directly implicated by this. I think that there's a concern for those in the system itself. I think there are people that work for the DOJ who think we need to make this thing fade out because someone in the DOJ, we know it was uh, Acosta, who was Labor Secretary, uh, someone in the DOJ decided to cut an unthinkably lenient deal for Epstein because an important person made a phone call for him. It undermines our whole system. The fact that Epstein got away with this for as long as he did makes a mockery of our justice system. That's the truth. Makes a mockery of it.
you can do the things that he does, not go to prison. I mean, there are people that there are are, you know, law enforcement agencies that will pursue, you know, a a, a teenager who sends a, a photo of himself or herself to another teenager of the same age if they're both underage and pursue serious felony charges for that. Now, put aside for a moment whether or not you agree with that that version of the law, because there are people that say that that seems to send somebody away for 10 years for that federal prison. That seems uh, look what Epstein did. And now they're saying that this guy was having underage uh, underage sexual. You know, it's not a sexual relationship it's raping. I mean, underage sexual assault while he was serving his sentence in Florida. I mean, this guy made a mockery of the system top to bottom. And if he can do it, guess what? Other people will be able to do it, too. And there are people that would much rather make this go away within that system. I'm not saying that they were complicit with Epstein. They just think that they're doing the country a favor by protecting the perception that we have a fair justice system when really, when you look at it, if people are powerful enough, if they're connected enough and liberal enough, they can get away with almost anything. See Epstein, see Weinstein, see Cosby, see all these different people that you just say, oh, see, if you're rich and powerful, you can just get away with it. You just get away with it. Until eventually maybe you're not as powerful or rich or important and then may then they they make some show of getting you when you're you know you're in your seventies, your eighties and it's you don't have the same ability to make powerful phone calls anymore. It's just appalling the whole thing. I'm gonna stay on it as much as I can. I hope that this doesn't just slip through the cracks, the whole Epstein case. Well I think the New York Times now has totally lost credibility. Uh, they've given up on the Russian collusion delusion. And now what they're doing is they're trying the racist deal. And that's not going to work because I am the least racist person ever to serve in office, okay? I am the least racist person. But the New York Times, they're trying everything they can. It is a totally dishonest newspaper. It's a paper that really has lost tremendous credibility. And let me tell you, in six years, or maybe 10 or maybe 14, right? In six years... When I'm not here, the New York Times goes out of business very quickly. The New York Times is a propaganda organ of the left. That has that has become the case in a way that I think anybody should uh, should be able to recognize now. I, I think that's that's an objective statement. The New York Times is not objective, and that I didn't realize at first that the audio that we the transcript of the town hall from the New York Times that was leaked. That was not supposed to be made public. So because it seemed way too honest for what you would normally expect in the New York Times. It seemed like there was no way that it could be the situation that the New York Times would want people to find out that they were in the narrative construction business to feed an audience that has become brainwashed with anti-Trump leftism, not even really liberalism. But there's an excellent video on Uh, Prager University that deals specifically with leftism versus liberalism in the in the modern context. And I'm sure people would 
quibble with some parts of it, but uh, Dennis Prager himself does the video, and he explains, it reminds me of something that I used to say in the early days of this show all the time, which is I do not really, that's why I call them libs now at least, because I prefer the shorthand. They're not liberal. They are not liberal. They are leftists. They have appropriated the term liberal for themselves when in reality they are generally much more accurately described as anti-liberty. They are anti-liberals. And that's why they call them uh, progressives or statists or leftists. This is all much more accurate. They do not believe in free speech, which is a fundamental liberty. They believe in speech that does not offend their sensibilities and that they are the sole judges of what is acceptable and what is not. They, they do not. But I mean, you, you could, there's a whole slew of, of things that are worth digging into. And that he goes through, I think it's five different. Anyway, it's on PragerU. I don't, just giving them a plug here on the show. Why not? I like PragerU stuff. Uh, but the New York Times is the narrative creation business. And now that's beyond any reasonable doubt which means that everything that you read from them for the next year, if you read anything from them, I'm actually a New York Times subscriber because I like to read their leftist propaganda so I understand what the, what the enemy's trying to accomplish. But anything that you see from them should be taken under, you know, with a grain of salt, sure, but it should be taken more specifically in the context of this is an activist organization. It is an activist organization with journalistic tactics it is not a journalism organization that occasionally engages in some activism. That's been a switch. I think the New York Times, even 20 years ago, would have been more about presenting information and less about presenting narrative. But now, because of the proliferation of instant information that comes from so many different sources, the advantage that major newsrooms like the New York Times and the Washington Post and others have in giving you just the basics of information on any given day is much less than it used to be. And therefore, the business model has changed. And along with it, the politics have changed. It's gotten more hardcore left wing. And so because they know that their audience wants certain narratives to be uh, built and because they know that they can't provide you with information that a lot of other people can, can't provide you with, generally speaking, uh, it's become a propaganda organ. But they're not alone. And that's why it was kind of funny when Trump decided to uh, have some words with Peter Alexander of NBC. I mean, NBC is a super lib network. It's, it's as lib as CNN. And MSNBC, while I, I have less of a problem with MSNBC because at least they're, everyone knows that they're crazy libs. I mean, I don't, I don't think that anybody pretends Rachel Maddow or I was going to say Keith Olbermann, but you know he's gone for a while. Uh, who's the other guy? Lawrence O'Donnell. I don't think anyone believes that they're not libs that are sharing opinion. That's not the. Whereas you turn on Don Lemon and Bro Cuomo, Fredo Cuomo, rather, and you know that, that whole crew, they th still think they're journalists first. But Trump had some words for Peter Alexander over at NBC Play 8. This guy is the most biased reporter, NBC. You know, I made a lot of money for NBC with The Apprentice. And I used to like them, but they are the most biased. Peter is such a biased. You should be able, you should be able to ask a question, same question in a better way. You are so obviously biased, and that's why the public has no confidence in the media. NBC News 
has less credibility, in my opinion, with guys like you than CNN. I think CNN has more credibility than NBC News. I said, you have more credibility than this guy. Go ahead. And that's not saying much, because I don't think you, I don't, you know what? You know why? Because I don't think you have very much credibility. I got to tell you, this is one part of Trump that if he if he were no longer president, I'd really I'd really miss this stuff. Calling out the news media to their face. I mean, this has changed the dynamic forever. There was always this belief there was always and it it came largely from the media itself that, you know, journalists, uh, they they demand they require and demand a certain degree of of respect from the president of the United States or the president, unless it was Fox News, of course, which Obama used to trash and say wasn't a journalistic enterprise. And Obama would trash talk radio host by name. Uh, so let's not pretend that that's entirely new. But Trump at least will say about these different news outlets what needs to be said, which is that they're propaganda organs. They're not fair. They're not unbiased. They are trash. They are organizations that are peddling in lies on a daily basis. I don't mean lies of fact. I mean lie. Well, they do that too. That's the fake news component. But lies about who they are and what they stand for. And that is the most fundamental fake news. Who are you and what are you trying to do here, NBC? Who are you and what are you trying to do, CNN? Are you really just presenting your audience with facts, with information about what is happening of note on any given day or are you trying to curate a version of the world that will appeal to them and that will satisfy you nbc and cnn satisfy their own political biases at the same time play to the bias of the audience play to the bias of the people presenting to the audience That is what our mainstream media has been for a long time. And thank Trump for calling it out. Had a great talk with Wayne yesterday. Didn't say anything about that. We just talked about concepts. Wayne agrees things have to be done also. And we have areas where we can close. And for instance, we did fix Nick's last time. We have a lot of we have a lot of background checks right now. Gun owners can tell you that, others can tell you that. But there are certain weaknesses, we want to fix the weaknesses. And I think that'll happen. Let's see what happens. What do you stand for? I'm concerned that no matter what we agree to, when we get there, I'm concerned the Democrats will say, oh, well, we now want this and we want, and you know, it's a slippery slope. And that's what actually your gun owners and a lot of other people are concerned with. But assuming that that's not going to take place by the Democrats, Assuming they really want to get this done, we can get it done. Is Trump going to do background check expansion on firearms or not? I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that, including the president himself. Is this going to happen? Yes or no? I don't think anybody has a clear a clear sense. I had told you when there was that initial push based mostly on the emotion of the media, the frenzy after the two uh, mass shootings. Well, really, there were three mass shootings in about a two week period, Um, but the two in particular in El Paso and Dayton. and, And all of a sudden we're having the same conversation we've had so many times before about gun control. You and I, you being my beloved audience, we had our back and forth over red flag laws. 
I was open to them, read about them. You told me your concerns, and I recognize that they are more likely to be abused than to actually be useful and to infringe upon a constitutional amendment for the purposes of maybe kind of sort of at some undetermined point in the future preventing a shooting that would never have been prevented otherwise. Uh, That, to me, seemed like too much of a trade-off. But I've also mentioned to you that I think Trump, who is well known for changing his mind rapidly on issues, I think that President Trump might have just said to the media, you know what, guys, sure, I'm open to background checks. Let's have a conversation about background checks to take a little bit of the fire, a little bit of the ferocity out of their calls for action. Oh, we must act. We must do something. You'll remember that the media was willing to make a few of the Parkland uh, students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School into national political celebrities who were then able to go around, especially David Hogg, to go around and say very foolish, ignorant things about gun control on platforms all across the country, on MSNBC. And and if you said anything in response, you were being disrespectful to victims. In fact, there were even efforts to use any criticism of clearly public figure David Hogg as the basis for calls uh, for boycotts. If you, if you remember, I believe that happened on Laura Ingram's show on Fox News. There, the left and Media Matters, the most uh, grotesque, odious media organization uh, that I can think of, at least, and probably are others. But it's it's an absolute. Uh, it's a it's a smelly dumpster fire covered in in goose turds of an organization. Uh, that's what I think of Media Matters. They wanted Laura Ingram's show to be boycott because she criticized David Hogg. They try to use emotion, like the gun control movement tries to use emotion in the moment to advance an anti-Second Amendment agenda. That's what ends up happening. This is why whenever there's a mass shooting and then afterwards we hear about what they want done and we say, well, hold on a second. None of what you want done now, none of what you want legislated would have prevented in any way that mass shooting, they say, why won't you take action? Why don't you care about dead children? As if any person does not feel their heartbreak when they when they think about, when they read about these mass shootings, whether at a school or at a Walmart or anywhere else. You know, the, the unwillingness to have good faith discussions now in our public debates about policy, this is not going to lead us to happy places as a country. You know, the replacement of ad hominem over arguments that are rooted in good faith differences of opinion that respect facts that respect our commonalities this is it is getting worse and i think that it's in part because our constant connectivity we're all now connected all the time we're all listening and reading and watching and tweeting and posting and our constant connectivity means that every aspect of our life feels more political, which then means that people that try to leverage politics to their own ends keep on inserting greater degrees of politicization into our lives, into our sports, into our TVs, into our, you know, different entertainment mediums. And there's no escape from it, right? Then everything becomes political. Your speech becomes political. What you're posting online becomes political, you know, all of it. 
even you know how you dress. I mean, never mind wearing a MAGA hat or something. That that now has become explicitly political. But I think that Trump probably knows at some level that background checks uh, are unlikely to get through the Congress and the expanded back because we already have background checks. These discussions are always premised upon the, the gun control discussions usually start with a falsehood, which is we need laws to protect people from gun violence when they really should be. Are there any additional laws that we should add on to the mass of gun laws that are already out there and enforced to varying degrees? Are there new laws that are required or are there other options? One, we need to more effectively enforce the laws we have or two. We need to understand that sometimes passing a law has no good effect and only has downside effects. And is that the case from some of these gun control efforts? Well, that's what I would that's what I would like to know. That's what I would like to be able to discuss without being told you don't care about dead children. So Trump, I, I had thought this all along. I, I I'm of the mind that he says, yeah, sure. Let's talk about gun control knowing that with a few weeks with a few weeks time passions will have cooled a bit on the issue and he'll be in a better place to say you know they don't really have particularly good ideas here uh, there's this this isn't going to help anything or anyone so why would we do this under those circumstances why would we make the decision to infringe further upon a constitutionally protected right when a an honest and straightforward analysis of the implications of that or that it's not going to help anybody. That's where I think the president probably is now. I, I could be wrong. He may decide. He may be of the mind that it's time to uh, to, do, to do something on gun control. And I, I saw, I was surprised by some of the voices, including some over at Fox News, who were open to gun control. I was like, whoa, what's going on here? But I think Trump's going to move past this now because... We really already have the gun control laws that we need. The way to stop mass shootings is much more complicated, much more difficult, much more long term, which is how do we build a healthier society where uh, young men are not able to self-radicalize through feelings of hopelessness and hate and the, the combination of viciousness and despair that is displayed in these mass shootings. How do, how do we bring back a sense of, of honor and chivalry and decency to young men in this country. That would be, or you could also just look at the statistics and then you take the perspective that there is not actually a huge spike in mass shootings in this country. That That's another thing we could talk about. But if you bring that up, then everyone just says you're crazy. Oh, well, is it that the media covers this more or is it that there's actually more mass shootings? You're not allowed to look at the facts, You're not allowed to look at them. The facts get in the way of the narrative on this. And whenever that happens, the left wants you to know the narrative has to win. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Clear. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. In my world, in this world, I think nobody can be trusted. But could we be back to where we were pre-9-11 with the Taliban in complete Well, that's what we have to watch. And we'll always have intelligence and we'll always have somebody there. But you can say that about a lot of places, John. You know, it doesn't have to be that sector. But that does seem to be the Harvard University of terrorism. Okay? It seems to be. 
uh, and we'll always have somebody there. President Trump is trying to get us out of the longest war in America's history in Afghanistan. He's trying to draw it down and end this thing. I think the president has the right idea. I think his instincts are correct. I think that his recognition that it is time for this nightmare to end is uh, that that's exactly where the commander in chief should be now. I understand there are people that are going to disagree with this because they accept and you have to accept this if you're going to disagree that we would otherwise have U.S. troops in Afghanistan for the rest of my life, certainly. They're going to be there for another 30 or 40 years. And that's an acceptable outcome here. I do not think that's an acceptable outcome. Um, I do not think that we should take it upon ourselves to continue to uh, police Afghanistan for decades to come. Now, will we have some residual counterterrorism force in place that's able to strike at uh, targets that may pop up from uh, Al-Qaeda to the Islamic State in conjunction with our uh, Afghan allies? Sure. But we, we no longer can be in a responsible or in the position of responsibility for the cohesion and foundational stability of the Afghan state. Enough of that. I've had uh, too many friends for too long who are showing up walking in fields in Helmand or in Jalalabad or in Aruzgan or in, you know, Mazari Sharif. Enough is enough. I mean, the Afghan people need to figure this one out. And this is where we also need to have some honesty as a country about what may come next. I don't know if the Taliban is going to be able to overrun the central government of Afghanistan in time. I think it is likely. I think it is a distinct possibility that they maybe will bisect the country or they will declare an autonomous Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan within the territory of what is now Afghanistan. But I also know that there is no future that any of us can see in which there is no such thing as the Taliban. And so the Taliban, because you can't eradicate it. This is look. I disagree with the president and, and anybody who knows anything about Afghanistan honestly does too. When he says that you could win the Afghan war in a week, but he doesn't want to kill 10 million people, but he also doesn't want to use nukes. I don't know what he thinks he means with that. I think it's just a bit of bravado from the president where he's saying, listen, Taliban, if we have to come back there because you guys allow for external terror plotting that comes to America's doorstep again, the gloves will be off entirely and America's wrath will be a fearsome thing to behold. I think that that may be what Trump is getting at, but there is no there is no strategy, no matter how many people we, we think uh, we would be willing to take as collateral damage, which is a very, very sterile way of saying kill a lot of people. Uh, there is no way to win the Afghan war a week. It's, it's just not going to happen. So there's also no way to eradicate the Taliban because as long as they can retreat to the sanctuary of Pakistan and have really Pakistan in the in the tribal areas, as a rear guard for all further actions into Afghanistan with the complicity of much of the Pakistani security apparatus, the ISI, the Inter-Services Intelligence Agency, their equivalent of the CIA, uh, and working with different extremist factions inside of Afghanistan. We're never going to 
be able to say, you know what, everything's going to be fine. Afghanistan's a nice, stable, happy country, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. So if we don't want this to be our problem, we need to say we're going to go. And if we leave behind a residual counterterrorism force and the Taliban within a few years are able to overrun whole parts of the country, we might have to pull that force and say, okay, well, you know, the Taliban is going to be in charge now, but if the Taliban allows for any kind of terrorist activity on its soil, again, you know, external plotting, uh, like what happened before 9-11, we are going to just come back and lay waste to anything that we think is even vaguely a threat. I don't even know how many of you agree with this as a posture. I just think that this is where we have to be. Because what is the alternative? The alternative is to stay for another 20 years. And you could say, well, Buck, we have a presence there now. We're only losing a few soldiers a year, which those are still... Whenever people say that, they go on TV, I always think to myself, do they want to say that to the families of the of the deceased who are engaged in this mission in Afghanistan that at this point we're thinking maybe this shouldn't be a mission we're doing anymore? It's very easy to say we're only losing a few soldiers a year for people who go on TV. It's a lot more difficult to have to say that to the families of those who have lost their lives serving their country in a conflict where we are clearly not about to be invaded by Afghanistan and it's not... Uh, readily apparent to me what the major national security interest is that we would achieve by being by continuing in Afghanistan. Keep in mind, if we do stay with whatever, I think we've got about uh, 12 or 13,000 troops there right now. They want to cut it down to maybe half that number as part of the drawdown. And now there we, we've got U.S. troops in, in countries all in many countries all over the world. But the difference is when you have a contingent like we do in Afghanistan that is partnered with the government at the level that we currently have, there's some sense of responsibility for keeping this Afghan partner in power. And if things got really bad in Afghanistan, we would perhaps feel obligated to rush back in with a much larger force just to aid the central government in Kabul, you know, to help out uh, Ashraf Ghani, whoever else is still running around there in in power in Afghanistan. Okay, well, that's not a position we want to be in. We don't want to have to deploy troops there again. So I I think Trump is essentially correct on this issue. Uh, And there are no easy answers. There's no clean, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. There's no downside. We We should clearly do that. That's You're not going to have that in Afghanistan. This is a country that if you look back historically, this is played out the same way with the biggest empires, the most powerful militaries of the time, every time. The British fought two wars in Afghanistan unsuccessfully. The Soviets fought a war in Afghanistan unsuccessfully. Alexander the Great invaded unsuccessfully. Uh, The uh, Mughals from South, uh, South Asia invaded unsuccess, uh, unsuccessfully. I mean, you just go through history. You keep finding all these different these different iterations of, oh, we're going to pacify Afghanistan. It doesn't happen. Because the country doesn't have a cohesive national identity. It really is different tribes who were drawn together on a map. And it doesn't have enough infrastructure to overcome its very difficult terrain and geography. And that matters as well for central government power. 
So we're just we're not going to be able to do this and we shouldn't try. And I'm I'm comfortable saying that now. And I'm comfortable also saying if that means that in 10 years it's the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan again and uh you know we'll have to tell them you guys misbehave and we're just going to lay waste to the whole place, but it it can't just keep it, bad countries over, around the world can't keep being our problem to fix. You know, President Trump also said, I think it was today or yesterday, you know, why aren't other countries taking more responsibility for defeating ISIS? You know, we're, we're seeing these uh, news stories. This was just the New York Times earlier in the week. Oh, ISIS is rising again. There are cells and beheadings and assassinations in Iraq and in Syria. OK, well, the whole world has an interest in preventing the rise of ISIS. Why is it that always America has to do this? There are plenty of countries that could partner on with with different forces on the look the iranians don't wait for anybody they partnered with the assad regime can't somebody else step up here some regional powers and prevent the rise of another terrorist caliphate oh no it's got to be america again at some at some point you got to let these areas sink or swim on their own and it's it's always going to be tough it's there's always going to be the oh my gosh what about the allies we fall with there what about the promises that have been made we don't want an empire, folks. I don't want there to be an American empire abroad where we're holding together countries that don't want to be held together. Now, Afghanistan's the top of that list. Somebody had to take on what China was doing to the United States economically. We're winning big. I took it on. And it should have been done by previous presidents, but I took it on. And I'm happy to do it because it had to be done. Obama should have done it. Bush should have done it. Clinton should have done it. They all should have done it. Nobody did it. I'm doing it. So what do you say? Oh, my trade deals are causing a... My trade deals aren't causing a problem. This is something that had to be done. The only difference is I'm doing it. I could be sitting here right now with the stock market that would be up 10,000 points higher if I didn't want to do it. But I think we have no choice but to do it. And a lot of people that really know, people that love our country, they're saying, thank you very much for taking it on. And we're winning. He was right about China being a problem that has to be faced. I've been telling you this for a while here on the show, but it, it is important to remember. It's important to reiterate that the consensus against Trump from the beginning of his administration was picking a fight with China is a terrible idea. He shouldn't do this. He doesn't know. He doesn't understand trade, doesn't know what he's doing. And now, as we see what's really happening and as there's greater awareness of what the Chinese government has been up to, people realize, oh, hold on a second. Trump is just willing to do what his predecessors wouldn't because it would have caused short-term economic and with that economic pain, also political disruption, political pressure. Trump says, okay, I'll, I'll take the heat on this. With the trade war, which seems like a bit of a little too strong a term, even it's really a trade dispute. It's not really quite at war level yet, but with the trade war, I guess we'll call it that because that's what everyone says. Trump still has a very strong economy, an economy that's so strong that Democrats keep trying to find a way to 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 find a a crack in it that they can exploit and say, oh, no, see, it's not as good as he says it is. They're really just rooting for a recession, as we know. But Trump is right to point out that this is a problem that other people had left for him. It had been left on his plate. And there's really 
no excuse for Obama and Bush before him and, and Clinton before that, allowing the Chinese to get away with the theft of intellectual property, to get away with the forced transfer of technology and just all the different means. I mean, the cyber intrusions from Chinese soil in the United States trying to seize our most sensitive, most valuable technology. This is very important stuff. And we've just been told, oh, well, don't make too much noise about it because we need cheap stuff in Walmart. I'm sorry. That wasn't a good strategy. That wasn't a good plan. And Trump understood that. So as much as a lot of people bash this president and say, oh, he doesn't read, he doesn't know, he doesn't understand, there's all this there's all this criticism of his cognition. Trump has a better understanding of what we face with China than so many of the so-called experts. And if we do get some midway deal, you know, if we do get some more specific sector by sector concessions from the Chinese government, I do think that could have a very strong effect. It'll certainly signal uh, positively to the markets. And that may be very helpful going into his reelection, but more importantly, it may be very helpful for the American people. And Trump, you know, he's also understanding at this point that he needs to not hold back. Well, he never holds back, but he needs to be very honest about how he sees himself in this whole process. And that led to uh, to this moment. Play six. This isn't my trade war. This is a trade war that should have taken place a long time ago by a lot of other presidents. Over the last five or six years, China's made $500 billion, ripped it out of the United States. And not only that, if you take a look, intellectual property theft, add that to it and add a lot of other things to it. So somebody, excuse me, somebody had to do it. I am the chosen one. Somebody had to do it. I'm taking on China on trade. And you know what? We're winning. I am the chosen one. That clearly gets a lot of attention when the president of the United States says that. But I guess you could off, you could say it's technically true. He, he was chosen by the American people, so he's the chosen one in that sense. But, you know, this is we always hear about how politicians don't show leadership. They just do whatever the polls say. On this issue of China trade, which is one of the more important, not the most necessarily, one of the more important economic issues out there, this president has absolutely shown leadership. He's gotten ahead of where the consensus is. He's been willing to take heat. He's been willing to take criticism and stick to his guns. You never hear the media frame it in those terms because they never want to give Trump credit for anything. They'd rather just find ways to bash him and say he's horrible and say he's, you know, the, he's Hitler and all this other stuff. Remember the whole frenzy after the, the, the way the media was referring to Trump after the, uh, the terrible shootings in El Paso and Dayton, by the way, which notice how that just Dayton fell by the wayside as a news story. Much less interest in talking about Dayton, much less interest in covering Dayton. We all know why that is. But there was this instinct the media had that they could really do damage to Trump if they pushed it that week. And now we're now we're a, a, a week later in the news cycle and nobody even remembers all the stuff that they were saying about how racist Trump was. And Because they'll find another reason to call him racist tomorrow. Meanwhile, this president is trying to find ways to deal with real problems of the economy, of geopolitics, of military balance. 
He was asked specifically about uh, whether he has any concerns uh, on the Chinese military posture. This is what he said, play two. There is a new study out of Australia that suggests with the current Chinese military posture in the South, South China Sea, Indo-Pacific region, it could wipe out most U.S. bases within a number of hours. Is that something that keeps you up at night? Well, nothing keeps me up at night. I'll tell you, uh, we could wipe out anything we want. We have the most powerful in the world. And when I came in two and a half years ago, we were in a very bad position. Now we're in a very strong position. He said, I'm not worried about it. Uh, it was more specifically in reference to uh, Chinese posture in the South China Sea. Uh, they have been aggressive and expansionist there for a while. And you get into some of these uh, scenarios, some of the war gaming out there. I think that there was an Australian think tank that put out a an assessment that said that our regional bases would be in very bad shape if the Chinese decided to go to war with us. Uh, and, and there's also concerns about how effective we would be in defending aircraft carriers from uh, land uh, land-based missiles. So that's all very real, but this president doesn't stay up too late worried about that because he's focused in on this problem. He's staring down China, folks. I had lunch with a friend recently, team, who is a uh, school teacher, and and he told me about something I'd never heard of before, which is that there's a whole genre of literature now that is being taught to kids who are, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade level. And it's supposed to be books that they will relate to because they are written from the perspective of people who are living in similar circumstances to them. I think this is a very strange idea. Because first of all, I remember reading books about, oh, you know, talking frogs and people from different centuries of history and people from alternate universes and all, you know, all kinds of things. I don't remember ever thinking, I need to read a book with people who live in a similar circumstance to me and whose lives are like mine in the current era of American history. But there's a whole there's a whole genre of literature. And this is what they are now uh, teaching kids in school to, to the point where, you know, you'll have young minority students, for example, who are reading books that are about growing up in in a housing project where you know you're you don't have a dad and your mom is like having an affair with with the mailman and there's you know gang violence on the streets and all this stuff now in a, in a certain context i can understand the the theory here right you want people to be able to relate to what they're learning about but also what about the aspirational aspect of the creative uh, what about the escape from reality that creativity whether it's through literature through movies through music gives all of us shouldn't that be i mean that that is our shared inheritance as as human beings and you have these great works of of literature of genius uh you have you know even mozart and, and shakespeare and these these are things that belong or these are individuals and their bodies of work they belong to all of us to everyone and yet there seems to be, along with the wokeness and the diversity obsession, no, no, let's 
segment the creative arts and, and let's segment literature specifically so that certain people read certain things and other people read other things. I, I bring this up because I saw this piece in The Federalist today by Joy Pullman. Um, and it's a they look at the back to school catalog for grades three to six from Scholastic, which is a big children's publisher. And this is books that are selected through a partnership with the identity politics pressure group. We need diverse books. Here are some of the things they talk about. Quote, there's a graphic novel illustrating the plight of Syrian refugees titled Unwanted. Inside, accompanied by depictions of mass misery and repression, author Dan Brown says that he visited several refugee camps and made me a more sensitive witness to the refugees dilemma. Okay, I mean, the Syria, I've been in the Syrian refugee camps. Uh but it gets a little bit more interesting. There's a novel about a middle school girl who is cast as Romeo in the school production of Romeo and Juliet and finds herself attracted to the also female lead playing Juliet. Is it possible to be bisexual in middle school? The catalog breathlessly asks. These are books for these are books for kids for fourth and fifth graders. Okay, this is what this is what scholastic publishers are recommending for people. Uh, even though, quote, feminism is going on a style thanks to transgenderism, there remain in the scholastic catalog several peons to the celebratory and politics-neutral approach to life that includes What Would She Do gift set where girls can meet 25 rebel women who change history by daring to challenge inequality, gender stereotyping, body shaming, and bullying. Uh, I don't know, folks. Whatever happened to Moby Dick? Whatever happened to, you know, the wind in the willows, to the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, to uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Tolkien? I, I don't know. I'm just, what? I mean, Producer Mark, what are some of your favorite all-time books you read as a kid? Oh, definitely the Harry Potter series. Harry Potter series. I'll even take that. We got to read books about whether you can be bisexual in, in the fifth grade? I mean, this is not exaggerated, oh, right wing, we're getting upset. Why can't we share worthwhile literature with our children these days? Why isn't that the focus? I just want to know. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. T-minus two days until the Buckster returns to the N, to the Y, to the C. Got to hit that high C. New York City, here I come. Hometown of the Buckster, as well as eight million other fine Americans and an imbecile communist mayor. So Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And uh, here's what we got here. Ryan writes, how you doing, Buck? So I know I asked you about the next potential GOP in 2024. You answered Dan Crenshaw. I was in total agreement until I saw his support of red flag laws. Now he's at the bottom of my list. Do you still feel the same or does your answer change now? Uh, Save this for one of your last questions. I won't make it to my car if you answer it in the first part of Buck. I'm sorry, Ryan. We already got to it early on in roll call. Apologies. Uh, you got to put that at the top, my man. It's too late by the time I get to the bottom. 
I think that Dan, I think that Dan Crenshaw is going to run for president. I think he's probably going to win. So if that answers your question, there you have it. Uh, do I change my mind based on the red flag law situation? No, because uh, look, people need to be able to uh, explore different policy options in, in public discourse and not have it held against them for the rest of eternity, which is a way of saying, hey, I was even thinking maybe red flag laws were OK for a couple of days. And I love freedom as much as anybody. But I think Dan Crenshaw loves freedom a whole lot. So I would I would not count him out and I would not think that he should be at the bottom of your list for long, my friend. But it's your list. Peter, hey, Buck, congrats on the move back to NYC. If you haven't seen it yet, check out the movie The Man Who Killed Hitler and then Bigfoot. It stars Sam Elliott, and it is a surprisingly fun flick. It's on Hulu for free and out on home video. Uh, Peter, I have never heard of this. I have no idea what you're talking about, so I will have to take a look. I'll have to see what we can do to check this out. What is this? Have you heard of this producer, Mark? The man who killed Hitler and then Bigfoot? No, but he sounds like a great guy. I mean, he's definitely in the right place at the right time. I think that's fair to say. Chesson, a main man. Listen to yesterday's podcast and the repeated statements about Israel not allowing the two congresswomen in. Yes, they're allowed, but cannot have contact with the specific group. And how that is not being good ally makes me question where those feelings were. When members of the British Parliament were trying to prevent Trump from making a state visit, I wish more people were called out on their hypocrisy. You claim to call balls and strikes, then call balls and strikes. Sheards high, beards bushy. Well, Cheston, you're certainly right about the beards and the shields. As for call balls and strikes, yeah, man, I call out the hypocrisy of the left all the time because it is a constant. It is a consistent. The left is very, very hypocritical. It is just who they are. It is in their nature. And I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Uh, let's see what we have here. Lori. Buck, love your show. You're my go-to source for everything Middle East. I'm several days behind, so sure, I'm not the first to tell you, but, uh, but Thule, the U.S. base in Greenland, is pronounced Thule. Notice, Lori, how I said it right this time. Because, yes, you're not the first. That is, come on, that's kind of a tough, that's a tough pronunciation to get right. Uh, Greenland is mostly, I think it's 85% Inuit, which I think very few people, we, we all assume, oh, it's owned by, or not owned by, but it's a, it's a protectorate of Denmark, so it must be Danish people living there. Nope, it's mostly Inuits living there. So if you were to check it out, you would see, if you, if you look at the uh, majority of Greenlanders, they look like what we would think of as uh, Eskimos. Very similar in appearance to uh, Eskimos. Uh, Lori read six years Air Force working in the telecommunications field, married 39 years to retire, retired Air Force man, also worked as a government contractor. There's a running joke in the Air Force. If you messed up, you might be sent to Thule, Greenland. Well, Lori, that doesn't surprise me because Thule is the northernmost U.S. Uh, military base, I believe, of any kind. Certainly the most northernmost uh, uh, or the northernmost Air Force base. But I'm, I'm guessing it's not a ton of fun to be up there. Although in the Internet age, as long as you have satellite Internet and TV, you know, it's a lot better than it would have been, you know, 50 years ago or even 30 years ago. The Internet has changed so much of our of our uh, feelings of I know that there's the 
loneliness that comes from looking at Instagram all day and thinking that everybody is just constantly uh, walking around with perfect abs on a beach because that's what Instagram or, or rolling around with a puppy. And I'm I've got to say I'm guilty of that as well. I'm always like, oh, look at me with the puppy. Oh, I want to take photos with a puppy. But it turns out that the Internet can make you sad if you look at it all day long and you think that that's reality. But it also means that you're much less likely to feel entirely cut off from the rest of the world. So I think the Internet in general is a very good thing. Andrew Shields High, safe and warm in the morning when I play the podcast. I know you're quoting Jim Garrity, but Crispus Attucks was dead and could not have fought in the revolution. He was slain at the Boston Massacre. Also, also, when I had glitches with iHeart's feed this morning, I got the podcast from BuckSexton.com. That's what you have to do, people. Try another source when you don't like the quality of the podcast at your usual source. Well, thank you, Andrew. And yes, I would like people to go to BuckSexton.com, too. Uh, and the podcast, folks, is going to start to be available in September for your listening enjoyment by about 3 p.m. Eastern time. We're moving the show up. Yeah, yeah. Get excited. David. Hey, Buck, you always talk about how rough NYC was back in the day. Check out the 7-5 on Netflix. Jaw-dropping. I'm assuming that's for the 75th Precinct, which I think was in the South Bronx, if memory serves. Let me see. I'm actually going to, if I get that right. East New York, actually. Oh, I was going to say, then it would have been in, in the Brooklyn, East New York. How do you know that, producer Mark? I saw the movie he's talking about. Oh, okay. I thought you just knew that as a, as a function of trivia. Yeah, I know. The, the 75th Precinct, uh, East New York, that's, a very, that's still a pretty rough area. Uh, the majority of homicides in New York City come from two regions of the five boroughs. To this day, the South Bronx, actually pretty close to Yankee Stadium, and what is East Central Brooklyn. That's where things are the roughest. Uh, David also writes, I think it's interesting how we talk about unemployment based on race, which on all fronts is great right now. Why don't we talk about frictional unemployment for those leaving their jobs to look for something better? It's just interesting to me that we don't dissect the employment numbers like we used to. Well, David, you're a smart guy, and uh, maybe you could do that for us sometime. Write in and explain these frictional unemployment numbers. That'd be kind of cool. Scott writes, don't get me started on books and moving. My family moved frequently when I was a kid, and both my parents are avid readers with multiple bookshelves filled with books. We as the kids always got the pleasure of moving them when the time came. Not to mention my mother has a bad habit of finding the biggest box she can and filling it with books. Uh, Yeah, man, books are heavy. I love them, but they are heavy. So that's one thing when you're moving, you got to think about I know that I try to read for hacks online, you know, life hack things about moving to see if I could make it easier. They all say make a list and check it twice, see who's naughty, see who's nice. I, I moving is just always a pain. There's nothing about it that is fun. It's not easy. You got to do a lot of annoying admin. You know, admin's a lot of stuff. TJ Buck Elizabeth Warren had twelve thousand show up for a Minnesota town hall turn rally. And she's polling well in my home state of Iowa. Although Biden and Mayor Pete edged her out in our much more scientific cashier colonel poll at the Iowa State Fair. Should we be concerned by Pocahontas? 
She is constantly pandering to the minorities of the Democrat Party, and she has a plan for everything. And even though us conservatives may believe that a plan for everything is not really a selling point for a president, it is a selling point for those on the left who are trying to find someone that, quote, knows policy. I guess what I'm trying to get at is at which point does Trump need to start hedging against the policies of his next opponent instead of going after the squad? Or does he? TJ, a lot in this. Let's start with this. If part of the question, and I do believe it is part of your question, is whether or not Trump should consider Warren as a as a serious uh, candidate that he might have to face. The answer is, I do believe that Warren could end up being the nominee for the Democrats. I, I think that that's not an outlier possibility. The polls certainly show her in the top three or four uh, routinely. So Warren very well could be the Democrat nominee. As for whether uh, Trump is going to start running against his future Democrat opponent instead of the squad. Well, right now, because the Democrats are so far left, it's an opportune time for Trump to paint them as a particularly radical left party. Uh, the, The president's in a strong position to do that. And that might be helpful later on in the general election. So I think that there's some uh, timeliness in the president positioning the Democrats as much as he can as the party of AOC, Tlaib, Omar, and Presley. I always feel like Presley, though, they throw in there and it's kind of like, eh, does she really deserve to be in that squad designation? I don't know. That's I leave that to you. Timothy Buck, is it possible? First of all, Shields High. Is it possible to do a deep dive in the Trump administration approving the $5 billion sale of top-line F-16V Block 70 fighter jets to Taiwan? Also, the U.S. existing or exiting rather the INF Treaty and testing ground-launched Tomahawk cruise missiles out of our MK-41 VLS and its salutatory effect on the USSR and China. Whoa. Uh, Timothy, I think you should do the deep dive, Ben. You can more about this than I do. Let's see. There we have it. Team, wonderful to have you with me. I'll be back tomorrow, last show in D.C. tomorrow, and then Ben Weingarten's in on Friday. So he will be talking to you then. I'll be talking to you tomorrow. Shields high.